<laughs> okay. Um, so like I said, we've been going through the Sermon on the Mount. We've been talking about, um, we've been talking about like just what does it mean to be a follower of Christ? What does it look like? So we looked at how we respond to anger. We looked at last week how we're to respond to lust. And so this week we're going to look at how do we respond to divorce. And so obviously, like I said, divorce is, is a very sensitive topic. And so we, like, like I said, we want to handle that. We want to handle that sensitively. We want to handle that graciously and lovingly and truthfully all looking at Scripture. Because, you know, divorce affects a wide array of people and affects a great amount of people. Um, in fact, like this directly speaks to me. Because um, when I was studying through it, like my mom originally was married to someone, to her first husband, and then her first husband ended up committing adultery and running off uh, just to want to chase after drugs and want to pursue another woman. So my mom ended up divorcing him and, and marrying my dad. And through that, you know, once she married my dad, my dad ended up getting saved, coming to know Christ. And they ended up having five kids through that, me being one of them. And so this is a topic near and dear to my heart. And so how do we, how do we, how do we respond to this topic as a follower of Christ? Um, obviously looking at it truthfully, but also looking at it graciously. Because I think a lot of times people will forget about grace in the midst of all of this. And so this is what we're going to be looking at this evening in Matthew 5, 31 and 32. And um, like I said, this affects a great deal of people. In fact, like when I was looking up just different stats of, of how this affects, like, like people will kind of range on their statistics, but roughly it's between like 40 and 50 percent of marriages end up in divorce. And and not only that, but like this now, grant this ranges greatly. And there's a bunch of different factors that affect this. Like, let's say like, uh, you know, economic status. It could be uh, age difference. It could be religion or commonly held principles. In fact, uh, a couple of things I got from focus on the family. Um, People with a strong common faith have a 35% lower risk of divorce. And couples who attend church weekly are 47% less likely to divorce. However, divorce rates among nominal Christians are equal to the general population of 40 to 50%. Now, this doesn't simply mean like, oh, if we just attend church, we can check the box. And that means automatically be good. No, because why? Because like all of us, all of us are fallen, sinful, broken human beings living in a fallen, sinful, broken world. That, that mistakes will be made and things will happen. That there is grace that we learn to grow with this. And so, um, and so we have to have a better understanding of what, how does God define this? How does God have us respond to this? And in fact, it also directly affects like, people in my generation, Rebecca's generation, Pastor Aaron and Lawrence, and even y'all's generation. In fact, like a lot of people in y'all's generation, they're pushing off getting married until like they're 30. Because why? there's like certain check marks they want to reach. Like I want to complete college. I want to earn this amount in my salary. I want to discover myself first and figure out who I am before I get into marriage. And like, or like I want to, I want to move in together. I want to see like what it's like to live with this person before, you know, I actually fully commit to that. And it's a lot of things where people want to, people want to have all of the benefits, if you will, of marriage without fully committing to marriage. And, and so we got to look at is, is there's even some people that treat their, their Christianity like that. They want all the benefits of Christ, but not fully commit to Christ. And so we got to see what does the Bible say about this? So, and we got to understand is we as fallen sinful human beings, we like to set our own terms for marriage. Or some, we like to enjoy all the benefits of marriage without truly committing to marriage. And so... Here's something we have to understand is this. Our main point, our main point for the passage time we're going to be looking at is this. Is to be kingdom-minded, is to hold high God's original intended design for marriage. 
as one man and one woman for life. That that is God's original design for marriage. That from Genesis, from creation, we'll see a standard that, that God sets on this. But again, at the same time, we want to see how does Scripture respond to us? How do we respond as Christians on this? And how do we treat this subject? Because again, it is a, it is a sensitive one. So that's going, to be our main, uh, that's going to be our main point, and we're going to have different sub-points that go along with that. Um, but with that, let's look at the passage itself. So let's look at Matthew 5, 31 through 32. Um, so if you have your copy of God's Word, that's where it'll be. If not, if you have your notes, it'll be on the back side of that, so you can follow along with us. So here's what it says. This is Matthew 5, 31 through 32. This is the Word of the Lord. It was also said... Whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual morality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Let's pray. Dear God, as we come before you, I'll be honest, I am nervous. I am worried. And Lord, I just want to make sure that we are submitting all of this to your authoritative scripture. And Holy Spirit, I pray that you will just work in and through just me in this sermon. I pray it is just the truth that you authored in this word that is proclaimed and is not my opinion, that it is your truth that will take root in the lives of each and every one of us. It will be by your power that we produce fruit from that. Dear Lord, I pray that you just give us a sensitivity to this. I pray that you give us an understanding of this. I pray as we work through this that, that yes, this might stir up different emotions and thoughts and experiences and memories. And I pray we submit all of that over to you, to your sovereignty, to your love, to your grace, because you are a heavenly father. And it says we can cast all of our cares upon you because you care about us. So dear Lord, I pray that I just lay this before you that you will be glorified and honored through this, that you will help us understand this more. You'll help us become even more of the people of God you've called us to be and the family of God you've called us to be here at LSM. You continue to help us strive to make Christ's name known. It is only by your grace any of this is possible. And it's in your grace, in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, so I want to give a little backstory, uh, like to, to all of the, like to what we're going through right now. So Jesus and all these, he would always quote a certain Old Testament command. So okay, you've heard it say before, blank, but then I say to you, blank. So in verse 31, what he's quoting is he's quoting Deuteronomy 24, 1, where it says, When a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes, because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of the house, and she departs out of the house. So here's what happened is, is the rabbis and scribes and Pharisees at this time drastically distorted the original meaning of this text. And so how they distorted the original meaning of this text is basically it resulted in a greater number of offenses that, would, that people would use to justify divorce. So like, for instance, some things that people would use to justify divorce in the Old Testament is they would say like if they thought if the man thought his wife was slowly becoming less and less beautiful in his eyes, they, he feels that would be justified into divorce her. Or like in some guys' eyes, like if he felt like she had a like she had a consistency or a tendency to to burn like the food that she was cooking, 
The man felt that was that was the that 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 could justify that man divorcing his wife. But Jesus directly addresses this in verse 32, saying that is not the original intent of this. He's saying that is not the original intent of the law then. And that's not the intent of the law now. And so Jesus explains that in verse 32, where he says, but I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual morality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. So Jesus was explaining, hey, like this Deuteronomy 24.1, this was not just some blank check that any guy could use to cash on the most minor excuses so they could divorce their wife. He's saying this is not just some blank, blark conch, whatever you want to do so that way you can just divorce your wife however you best see fit. In fact, this certificate of divorce was supposed to provide protection for the woman at this time and establish boundaries for within these people, if they chose to, would choose divorce. That way it would protect the woman. That way if the man doesn't like want to say one day, you know what, I want to keep my wife. And the next day, you know what, I want nothing to do with her. Send her away. And the next day, you know what, I want her to come back. In fact, I want her back. It was to protect her from something like that. Or it was to protect her just from the silliest little thing, like over minor issues. That way it was to protect her from minor things that he feels like, I think that justifies it. In fact, I think we can even compare some of that today where some people say, well, well, we fell out of love. And, and that's why... And that's why we got divorced. Like things like that. People might find minor things to where, okay, that might, that would justify divorcing. But Jesus is saying, no, like that, that is, that is not the original intent of this law. And Jesus explains to us that the only excuse that has biblical grounds for divorce is sexual immorality. Is sexual immorality. So it's only when a person has had a sexual relation with someone else other than their spouse does that give reason in God's eyes where divorce is permissible. Where, where it's permissible in God's eyes to divorce. Now something I want us to also go a little more in depth on to understand that is, yes, is that sexual morality gives biblical grounds, biblical permission for divorce. But I also want us to understand that doesn't automatically mean that we should just go ahead and seek divorce as the first option. I think what we have to understand is, is that God's ultimate desire in light of the gospel is this, is redemption, is reconciliation, and restoration. That is the ultimate desire of God in, in, in divorce and in any other people's lives, outside just this one. That is, that is the ultimate desire, is that there is, there is a redemption of that marriage. That there's reconciliation between two parties and that there's a restoration of that marriage because it can be a, a testimony to the beauty of the gospel, to the power of the gospel. How his mercy is more and his grace is stronger than any darkness or sin that the world could throw at us. But here's the thing, yes, the act of adultery is sinful, it's hurtful, and it's wrong. It can only be restored by the power of the gospel. But here's the thing. There's something else we've got to understand, too, that if the person that has committed adultery, the person that has wronged the other person, if they are unrepentant, if they are unwilling to admit that they have done any wrong, if they are unwilling to confess that sin, if they're unwilling to repent from that sin, then yes, by all means, that gives grounds for divorce to separate from that, to get permission from that. In fact, Jesus goes a step further. Jesus puts, all the, Jesus puts a lot more responsibility on the man in this passage. Because in Deuteronomy 24.1, we saw like the man was the one saying, like, oh, I got this minor offense, and so I just don't want uh, to deal with it anymore. So I'm just going to hand her a certificate of divorce and be done with it. But Jesus steps it up even more, like puts even more responsibility on the man. And look at what it says. 
It says, but I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, so if the man divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual morality, makes her commit adultery. That if the man is the one that, that chooses saying, you know what, I'm just going to separate just for some minor thing, then it's the man that is the one that is causing sin to happen. He's the one that's allowing this to happen. And so Jesus is pressing even more on this Ephesians 5.25 passage where men, we are to love our wives as Christ loves the church. And when we look at the example of Christ for his church, Christ served his church, Christ protected his church, and ultimately Christ died for his church. And that it puts this responsibility on man that we are to take this seriously. That, that we are not to just find any minor reason to separate. That it is only by the great sin of sexual morality that it gives permission on that. And I think people read this and they go, why, why is Jesus so serious about this? Like, why is he so, like, why is he so serious about like, these grounds? And that's because God takes marriage seriously. Like in Genesis 2.24, God lays out the original ideal design for marriage from the beginning of creation. He says in Genesis 2.24, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. So hold fast, it means to become uh, joined, united, linked. And so it's, it's, a, it's a son and daughter. They're leaving their father and mother and they're becoming one flesh. It's not just some relationship where they say, oh man, like we just love each other. So we just want to tie the knot. No, they're saying like you are becoming one flesh. You're becoming one unit before God. And in Matthew 19, four through six, Jesus reiterates this even more where he says, he reiterates Genesis 2, 24, saying a man and woman shall leave their father and mother and shall become one unit. And then says, what God has brought together, let no man tear apart. And the principle we get from that is God sets the standards for marriage, not man. Is that God sets the standards for marriage, not man. Why? Because marriage is a covenant between one man and one woman for life before God. And I think a lot of times we hear the word covenant and we think like that's more of like an Old Testament term. We think it's just a weird, archaic term. But, but covenants mean a lot to God. I mean, covenants God takes seriously. In fact, in the Old Testament, here's what they would do. When two parties would make a covenant between each other, they would literally take an animal and they would cut it in half and they would lay each half down on each side and obviously you see the blood coming together and they would walk in between those two animals, basically saying, hey, if I break our covenant, then I'm to become just like this animal. Like they took covenant seriously. Like that's us. And then even in the New Testament, this New Testament, we are under the new covenant with our relationship with Christ. But think about it. What did our relationship with Christ cost? It cost God his own son. That he had to sacrifice his own son to die on the cross to pay for the penalty for all of our sins for all of time in order that we might be reconciled back to God. So we can have this covenant with God. So God takes covenants very seriously. And that's why he takes marriage seriously. Because again, a covenant is, is a commitment for life between one man and one woman before God. In fact, marriage is a reflection of the gospel. Like marriage is a reflection of the gospel. When you look at Ephesians, we look at the standards how it lays out. As I said, in Ephesians 5.25, it says, Hey, husbands, love your wife as Christ loves the church. And it says a few verses later, Wives, submit to your husbands as the church submits to Christ. That is, we live out this originally design, this original design that God had from the beginning. That is another way that we represent the gospel and show the gospel to a fallen society. 
even in our marriage and our families, that is another way that we can proclaim the gospel through that. That's why Jesus says when we divorce our spouse, it's literally like ripping flesh in half because it's splitting one flesh union of marriage. In fact, in Malachi 2.16, Jesus, sorry, sorry, in Malachi 2.16, it wraps up very well where it just says, God hates divorce. Why does he hate divorce? Because it's, it's breaking the original design of what he had for. It's breaking the original design of what he planned. But here's the other side I think that is so key for us to understand. Is that we can be so big on this truth and so big on, yes, that is God's original design. That is God's ideal for us. That is God's original design is that it's one man and one woman for life and a covenant before God. And it's, we have to remember how serious God takes marriage. But at the same time, on the same side of that coin, we must understand and remember how serious, or not how serious, how loving and how gracious and how forgiving our God is. Because he is a heavenly father. Again, we are a fallen, sinful, broken human beings living in a fallen, sinful, broken world. And, and of course, not all divorce is equal. I know a lot of times we want to think of things as just black and white, cut and dry. That's how it is. But that's not how life plays out sometimes. There is, there is times where there's a difficulty. It's not just cut and dry. There's times where it's not just a gray area. And when there is gray areas, or even in black and white areas, there is grace abounding. There is grace abounding. And even from a teenager's perspective, it can be hard to wrap our minds around this concept of divorce. It can be difficult because it can affect people in different ways. In fact, it's so tempting during a divorce. It's so tempting for, for teenagers or us that are affected by that divorce to believe certain lies that Satan tells us. Like certain lies that we might believe saying, it's all your fault. You're, you're the reason that they split. And that is a lie. That is a lie from Satan. That is not the truth. Or again, it's easy for us to get angry. It's easy for us to get angry because maybe we don't understand. It's easy for us to get angry because maybe we might understand this standard that God has. We feel like that this is righteous anger, that something wrong is occurring. And we might get angry at maybe one or both parties because we see how it's hurting other people. There's real emotions to this. And I want you to understand, those emotions are valid. I want you to understand, those emotions are very valid. And God cares about those emotions. Why? Because God gave us those emotions. We saw that last week, that God, or a couple weeks ago, that God gave us anger. And it's how we respond to that anger that's important. That getting angry in and of itself is not sinful, but it's how we respond to that anger. That anger taken to our own hands will always lead to bitterness. And bitterness will consume us and hurt us so badly. As we saw two weeks ago, we said that example of when we let a fire get out of its, get out of, let's say, that fire pit, and it started consuming everything. When we allow anger to consume us, not only does it consume us, but it'll start affecting those around us. And so we want to submit this ultimately to Christ. We are to submit our emotions to Christ. We're to seek his heart for this. And ultimately, we are to forgive one or both parties. Now, here's the thing. It doesn't mean we agree with the actions that they did. That doesn't mean that we agree with what they've done, because maybe there are some things they've done that is sinful and has sinned against God. 
But we are, we are to not hold that against them. We are, when we say we're forgiven, we're literally taking it and we're handing it over to God saying, I hold it over you no more. Because again, this is something between those two adults that they need to reconcile between themselves and God. Here's the thing. As Christians, we must operate from a stance of grace. We must operate from a stance of grace. It's so easy for us to take like this. It's so easy for us to take the truth of this and just use that almost as just, just something to beat someone over the head with. And that doesn't help anybody. Yes, there is truth. There is the truth of God's word that we are to understand and we are to submit to. But there is also grace in the midst of all of this. There's grace in the middle of this because here's what we've got to say. The act of divorce, yes, it, it is a sin, but it is not an unforgivable sin. It's not an unforgivable sin. It doesn't make anybody less of a Christian. It doesn't lessen the love that God has for people. It is not outside the depths of God's love and grace and forgiveness. Yes, divorce is a sin, and there might be greater consequences to this sin, but it is still just like any other sin that was covered by the blood of Christ at Calvary's hill. In fact, in Romans 10, 9, it says, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. It says in Hebrews 10, 14, it says, I will remember their deeds of lawlessness no more. Or PK talked about this verse in Psalm 103, 12. He says, He casts our sins as far as the east is from the west. The reason why we say this is because if we go forever north, we'll eventually reach the North Pole, and we'll be heading down south. If we head forever east, we are forever heading east. If we head west, we're forever heading west. Which means we're saying he casts our sins as far as the east is from the west, meaning forever cast both directions. And what he's saying is he, in scripture, it's not having any sort of caveat. There's no asterisks next to, oh, all of them can be forgiven except this sin. Or all of you who are weary and heavy burden can come to me except these particular people. No, he just says, all who are weary and heavy burden come to me and I will give you Rest. I will give you rest for your weary souls. I will cast your sins as far as the east is from the west. I will forgive you and, uplift and love you and uplift you. I will meet you where you are at. Why? Because Christ loves us. In fact, we see an example of this. In John 8, 3 through 11, the, uh, the Pharisees caught this woman in the middle of committing adultery and dragged her before Christ. As explained, like she has committed adultery, which means by the law, that means we are to stone her to death. And Jesus says, okay, then how about this? He who is without sin can cast the first stone. You who have never committed a sin in your life, then you can throw the first stone. And one by one, the people started slowly leaving. And at the end, it was just Jesus and this woman. And Jesus asked her, who has anybody stayed behind and condemned you? And she says, no. And Jesus says, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. And so we got to understand that, that, yes, there might have been a sin committed, but God forgives that sin and we continue to live a holy and perfect life. That we continue to strive for holiness just as God calls us to. That even if, let's say, there is a remarriage, that you commit yourself to Christ in that marriage. That, that if maybe there is pain there, you submit that to God and you allow him to help you with forgiveness and love through that. And I think something at the end of the day that is so important for us to understand is with this law that Jesus gives us and with all the other laws of have Christ came to fulfill the law 
and how we are to not anger and how we are to not lust, just like with all those others, Jesus is our perfect example. Jesus is our perfect example of this. Think about this. When we repent and believe in Christ, yes, we become a follower of Christ, but we also become a member of the church, capital C. Now, obviously, we're part of a local church, lowercase c, in Las Casas Baptist Church. But we repent and believe. We become a part of the universal church, big C. And we're described, the church, universal church, is described in Scripture as the bride of Christ. So think about this. When we repent of our sins and believe in Christ, we enter into an eternal covenant, an eternal union with Christ. And so think about this. According to, according to this standard in Scripture, that if, that if someone commits adultery, that gives permission for the other person to divorce from that person committed adultery. So according to this standard set in scripture, every time that we lust after another person or another thing in creation, we are committing adultery against Christ. That every time we lust after someone else or something and cover that more than Christ, we are committing adultery against Christ as the church. And so that gives legal grounds, that gives biblical grounds for Jesus to divorce us if he would, to separate himself from us. But as we read in scripture, that is not who Christ is. That is not who Christ is. Does he disprove of our sin? Absolutely. But he doesn't leave us. It says he will never leave you nor forsake you. I mean, just as we learned, just as we read together in Lamentations 2, 23-24, it says, hey, his mercies are new every single day. That if we will repent of our sins and believe in Christ, he is faithful to forgive us and restore us back with him. Think about this. He loves us, he forgives us, and he constantly pursues us. Think about this. The amount of times that we run after, let's say, other people or other things in creation. And when Christ has every right to divorce us, but you know what Christ does? Christ pursues us nonetheless. Christ says, that is my bride. And there is, there is no sin too great that I cannot forgive. There is no place too far away that I cannot meet him at. There is no rock bottom too great that, that I, my love cannot meet him there. There is no chasm too far wide that my grace cannot bridge. In fact, a beautiful picture of this is in the Old Testament in the story of Hosea and Gomer. And so if you're not familiar with the story of Hosea and Gomer, Hosea was a prophet of God. And so God's saying, hey, I have a wife for you that I want you to marry. And that's going to be a witness for me to the nation. So Hosea's like, okay, God, who, who do you have in mind? And he points out Gomer. And Gomer was a prostitute. And Hosea goes, okay, you must have something wrong here, God. Because like, do you not know who this person is? And like what they've... Done, he goes, no, like, that is the person I've, that I have you to marry and be a witness for me among the nations. So they end, up getting, they end up getting married, things like that. But throughout it, Gomer ended up leaving him and chasing and pursuing after other men and other things. And you know what God said? God could have easily been like, okay, that's it. Divorce, but God's going, no, go pursue her. What? Go, go get your wife. Go pursue your wife. The one that, that pursues other men, the one that pursues other things, go chase after, go pursue her. And in fact, so Hosea ends up going and he's trying to go and he ends up having to buy back Gomer. It said he had to buy, use 15 shekels, <clears throat> 15 shekels of silver and, um, and some barley. Think about this. Gomer, who's Hosea's wife. Hosea's like, that's my wife. And the guy said, no, there's a price that you must pay. And Hosea goes, okay, what, what's the price? And paid it in full and redeemed Gomer back to him. 
And the reason I explain it is because this is a beautiful picture. This was a picture of how the nation of Israel kept running away from God and God continually pursued them. And continually pursued them. And it's, and it's a foreshadowing of us now. Of how we will constantly run after other things. We will constantly pursue other things. But as we pursue other things that are not Christ, Christ continually pursues us. He continually chases after us. He continually wants to redeem us and welcome back in his arms. And ultimately, he bought us back. He created us and he bought us back by shedding his blood on the cross. To paying the penalty for all of our sins. For all of time. He came and sacrificed himself to redeem us back to him. Christ is eternally faithful to us. Christ is eternally faithful to his church, his bride. And he is our example of how we live our life. He is our perfect example of who we are to look to. He is who we are to look to for how we are to live out our marriages. Because he is supposed to be at the center of both our lives and both our marriages. Both our life and our marriages. He is to be at the center of it because he is the perfect example of who we are to pursue after. So let me ask you this. In regards to how Christ is eternally faithful, how Christ never leaves us nor forsakes us, how that affects the way we view marriage, how that affects the way we view a true covenant of marriage, how we are to view it, how we're not to just flippantly enter into relationships, but how we truly honor it and revere marriage for how God designed it. So in regards to this question about how, or in regards to this point, how Christ is eternally faithful, I want to ask you this. How highly do you hold the covenant of marriage? Do, do you just view marriage as, well, I love this person, they love me, we want to we live together, and I guess we'll just do that. Or, or do you view marriage as something, hey, this, is a, this is a covenant, like this is a lifelong covenant that we're entering into before God. That yes, it is two sinners coming together to pursue Christ together, so will there be faults and shortcomings and failures? Absolutely. But there is also grace abounding to help us strive for this perfection and strive to glorify and honor Christ in our lives and in our marriage. And lastly, how faithful are you being to Christ? Because again, we got to understand this, that yes, eventually there might be many of us that find a future husband or wife. And we obviously we want, we want to be faithful to them. But God understand this, that we want to be faithful to Christ because he is our perfect example of what it looks like to be a faithful spouse. So we got to start right now becoming the person of God, the future spouse of God that someone else is eventually going to marry. That we want to strive for this. So how faithful are we being to Christ even right now? And know that there is ways that maybe you are not being fully faithful as you should be. Maybe there's things that you are, there is pursuits you're going after that you know you shouldn't pursue after. Know that you can have redemption restoration and reconciliation tonight just as we said because that is the heart of the gospel that it redeems us and it reconciles us back to God and restores us back into a right relationship with him that is the heart of God and that is how we are to view marriage in the light of Christ and the gospel let's pray dear Lord thank you for your perfect son Thank you for his perfect example of just understanding what it means as, as just a follower of Christ, understanding the, the intentions of marriage from the start. And I pray that 
marriages in this church would reflect the gospel. I pray each and every one of us right now, even though even these students aren't married yet, that they will be faithful to you, Christ, right now and point people to you that when they enter into a covenantal marriage, that marriage will be Christ-centered and gospel-glorifying, pointing people to you. Thank you for Christ as our perfect example. Thank you that Christ is eternally faithful to us. The amount of times that we will chase after other things that are just so lesser, so unworthy, that we're, that we're chasing after apple cores and we have a king's feast that you lay in front of us. Would you continue to remind us of how much you love us and pursue us and chase us down, how you will meet us where we are at, how regardless of what happens in this world, that you are always with us. You will never leave us nor forsake us. So would you be with each and every one of us? Would you help us as we navigate through this? This is a sensitive thing. So would you give us the grace to understand this and walk through this and through all that live faithfully for you and point others to you and continue to make Christ's name known? It is only by your grace we're able to do this. I pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.